This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil review this week's legal developments, including Trump's quest to remain on the Colorado ballot and his claims of total immunity, assess Joe Biden's effort to avoid an escalating conflict in the Middle East, and close with a fun new game we're calling If I Were. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Politics Lab. My name is Phil Barker. I'm a professor of political science at Keene State College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Bill Muck, who's professor of political science at North Central College. Hey, Bill, how are you? I'm doing well. This feels like deja vu, Phil. (laughs) (laughs) It does. (laughs) So our listeners are probably wondering why we didn't do an episode last week and why we're releasing an episode on Friday. So, Phil, what was going on last week? Well, so last week on uh, on Tuesday night, I started not feeling well, and I tested positive for COVID on Wednesday. So, um, what we, we began, uh, I we I woke up on Wednesday feeling okay. You had you had texted me and said you want to, you feel well enough to to podcast, and I was like, yeah, well, we'll see how the day goes, and was feeling fine. And then by the end of the day on Wednesday, I was just out, and so it was, uh, uh, yeah, this was my second go with COVID, and it was, uh, I think, worse than the first one, but it was. Uh, uh, it man, it came on quick. It was like a from the time I had my first symptom till I was like you know laid out flat on the couch. It was less than twenty four hours. But uh, uh, so yeah, it, it turns out we uh, uh, we didn't we didn't get around to recording last week. No, and then our plan was to record as normal on Wednesday, and that's that's what we did, and we recorded a fantastic <laughs> episode. I really, we finished that episode, and I said that's one of our best we've ever done. It was just, you it know, was the great. content was great, our dialogue. It just felt like we were really kind of getting to the heart of matters. And then I went to download the episode and kind of do some editing, and I realized that I had clicked the wrong audio input button, and I had zero <laughs> audio. <laughs> So our only option was to either just listen to Phil, all of Phil's audio, and he would sound Which a little like a crazy man, but you know. It would have been, been entertaining. Something. Yeah. So so we're, I don't know if this is sort of re-recording. I feel like I've forgotten everything I said on Wednesday, so it should still feel new. Me too. And then yesterday was a pretty significant day with the yes. court stuff and everything. So yeah, it, it, maybe it made sense. Maybe it's good that we're uh, having to, to re-record. It's, it's, this, we should, go ahead. It's pretty amazing this hasn't happened before. I think you and I, like we're, we, you know, we're, we're pretty good with tech, but we're also, you know, middle-aged white guys. It right. seems like the, it was inevitable that this was going to happen at some point. <laughs> I'm glad it was you and not me though. <laughs> It's also a sign, in a second, we should probably talk about Joe Joe Biden's mental uh, faculties, but it's also ironic that you get sick and then I forget how to click a proper button. You know, I mean, it's, it's not suggesting that we're in the, the most competent mental places either, that we can't figure out how to record or get out of bed. So. We need to really hire like a... Uh, a 15 year old to do all our tech stuff for us. <laughs> exactly right. Yes, yes. So, well, speaking of Joe Biden, you sent me a couple articles yesterday about we're going to just do, yeah. you know, a quick hit, a couple quick topics before we dive into the sort of the big topics. What's going on with Joe? Well, so yeah, I, I mean, maybe I, depending on it was was last late last night, so depending on yeah. when people are are listening to this, it may be news. But yeah, the 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 special prosecutor or whatever the special counsel, I guess, is the is the is the term that was appointed to look into Joe Biden's handling of documents. So if people remember correctly. I, after all the stuff with with Donald Trump's mishandling of of uh, top secret documents, there were documents discovered at Joe Biden's house as well. So you know, again, to be even handed, the Justice Department appointed a special counsel to look into Joe Biden. And so that report was released last night. 
And that report said, like, absolved him of any wrongdoing. They decided there was nothing to charge him with. But the the report went out of its way to talk about how he is, like, having memory issues. So part of the reason why it concluded that he didn't do this, like, criminally was that he's old and forgetful. But it, it goes out of it, it sort of goes out of its way to talk about, like, how he's a, you know, I, I forget what the phrase was, but it was like, uh, you know, a... Uh, 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 like a well-meaning, kind, elderly man with memory issues oh, or whatever, which is just, just like what the, you're looking for in a oh, top-notch presidential candidate. The last thing that Joe Biden yeah. wants uh, to have, and and his people, and he uh, like lashed out because and their point is valid, which is so the guy who is the special counsel is a Trump appointee and 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 all of these other things, but yeah, they their their whole, their argument was essentially like this is like this is a look. This is supposed to be. Looked looking into whether he committed a crime and it's not really a place it's inappropriate to sort of make these allegations. So I, I think that's probably true, but it's, it's just, I think the damage is, is done. It's not what Joe Biden, yeah. certainly not what Joe Biden wants. I've already seen a number of even like, you know, people like liberals who are, who are like, you know, saying like, man, this is, this is why we shouldn't have, have made Joe Biden our nominee. And I don't know why. I mean, what's your take on that? It's not good for Joe Biden no. or the Democrats. Democrats, right? It's a really, it's really problematic, and I, I think a couple things. One, it's not surprising if that's what's going on, right? I mean, I think my father is the same age, and he talks all the time about how he shouldn't be president because he forgets things, and this is a, a normal yeah. evolutionary development of an eighty-one-year-old man. Um, but it also matters when there's so much at stake for a presidential election. I, I mean, in terms of what the, they need to do is they just got to get Biden out in front of people. I, you know, he gave that press yeah. conference yesterday. And, you know, I was watching some reactions on Twitter and people were like, hey, that, he seems like he's with it. Right. So I think they're going to have to be intentional about strategically putting him out so that people can hear him and talk to him and kind of sort of, you know, convince themselves that it's this is not an issue. But I, I mean, he's president if he wins again for another four years, four years, yeah. which rate. I mean, so those things aren't going to get better, which, again, is the question is, you know, at some point, does he step away once he's in office? I mean, I don't know. It's it's the last thing the Democrats want to deal with right now. I mean, now, if you give me the choice of you know an 81 year old man who forgets things, or a, what is Trump 77 year old man who wants to undermine and, and overthrow democracy, right. I still take the forgetful old man. Yes, and you know, 100%. And at the end of the day, I think the American public will as well. But it's not the Democrats aren't putting their best foot forward if this no. becomes a campaign issue. No. Yeah, no, I there was I saw somebody who was making the argument, I forget who maybe in the Atlantic, I don't remember where it was, but basically was arguing that um uh, if you're voting for Joe Biden, you're basically at this point, you're voting for either a Kamala Harris presidency or a sort of <laughs> yes. second term Ronald Reagan, where it's kind of a caretaker thing because it'll yeah. be 85 by the time he's done. And that's probably not entirely fair because, you know, there are people who yeah. are mentally sharp till into their hundreds. Right. And so yeah. it, it, it's not totally fair, but it is. I mean, it is like this is, again, you know, actuarial tables say the odds that he dies in the next four years are pretty good. Right. When you hit 82, 85, 80, you know, when you're in that. And so. Yeah, I'm I'm 100% with you. I will take him. I, I again, I think he's had a, a really effective, successful four years. I think, and and we've talked about this. But yes, it's it felt it feels like a missed opportunity where the the Democrats could have like handed off 
to a new generation and and especially with Donald Trump like I think that this is you know you had a, a chance that I, I I think you know it's it's a simpler argument to make whoever the candidate is that like I support democracy and that guy doesn't and it's a chance to you know to do a Nancy Pelosi and step aside and yep. let some let a younger generation take over and it feels like that was that was a missed opportunity by Joe Biden and by the Democrats I I, I agree and and you're right and and because Joe Biden, I think history will look back and and judge those four years, first four years, as really successful, both domestically yep. in terms of legislation, also in terms of foreign policy. Biden has shown an ability to surround himself with good people and also to approach some really challenging issues in thoughtful and calculated ways. And again, you don't know how much is Joe Biden versus the team, but at least he's got some input on that. Um, yeah, but but that doesn't matter, right? Every all people are talking about now is his age, and that will be the central campaign. And you know, for Reagan's second term, he was able to sort of flip this a little bit and, and argue about experience. And so Joe Biden's got to try to do something similar: convince people that yeah. you know he's still he's still with it, um, which I think he is. Every you know, behind the scenes, people that meet with him say that they don't see anything. Even some Republicans have acknowledged that. But but this report will undermine all of that. So it's uh, yeah. it, it was not a good day for the Biden administration. No, no. Go Yeah, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, before we dive in, do you want to remind everybody we got you've got some good stuff on the web page, how to stay connected, and then, then we got to talk about these courts. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the, the politics lab is the web page. You go there. You can find, again, all our social medias, which are not particularly active, uh, but you can find uh, emails for Bill and I. But the, the main thing is you go there and you can find uh, all of our old episodes. And for each episode on that episode page, there are readings relevant to the things we talked about. So I've got a number of articles about um about some of the topics, about uh, the the various courts uh, court cases this week. Um, about we're going to talk a little bit about the Middle East, um, and uh, so all of those articles are there at thepoliticslab.com. All right, we, let's let's do it. There's a lot of, a lot of legal shenanigans. Yeah, so I, I'm gonna I'm just I'm realizing I'm about to start reading the the write up I did to, for uh, for this topic on Wednesday before the court had heard things. So, <laughs> just I'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna ad lib as we go here. So it's been a it's been a big week in the courts for Donald Trump um, and for American democracy. So uh, earlier this week, in response to Trump's claims that he is immune from prosecution for acts while president, the D.C. Court of Appeals issued a long, clear, and unanimous opinion, essentially destroying Trump's argument. Um, it was a bad day for Trump. The, the court stated that, quote, for the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against prosecution. Um, and in an attempt to prevent Trump from delaying that case, that that trial, January 6th trial, even further, the court only gave him a week to appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, and at that point, either if he hasn't appealed or if the court hasn't taken it up, the, his his January 6th trial can proceed. Um, and the, the opinion was supported by both Republican and Democratic appointees. Um, and it was so well constructed, that a lot of scholars seem to think that maybe the Supreme Court won't even touch it. We'll just let it stand. Um, which might be a good thing based on what we uh, heard yesterday at the Supreme Court. So the other case is that uh, yesterday the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Trump v. Anderson, which is uh, the case that will decide whether or not Trump can remain on the ballot in Colorado. As you may recall, Colorado, Colorado removed Trump from the ballot based on Article 3 of the 14th Amendment, which states that no person shall hold any office who, having, taken, having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution, shall have 
have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Uh, you know, his, I, I, I think his, 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 well, I don't think I, I don't, it's not just that I think it's pretty clear that Trump's case in this, his argument in this case, in the Anderson case appears stronger than in his immunity case. But what was, what we saw before, um, the oral arguments from Trump's, you know, lawyers, and then what came out in the oral arguments was that, uh, despite having a sort of a stronger case, his, the arguments he was making are kind of bizarre. So, you know, he was, he wasn't claiming that his due process rights were violated, that, that, that was, wasn't, that's kind of the logical approach, but he was arguing that he's not an officer. There was this weird debate between office and officer that Trump wasn't uh, technically an officer of the United States while president. So the 14th amendment doesn't apply to him. Um, he, his, his lawyers had made sort of a independent state legislature theory that, 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 uh, that only state legislatures and not the Supreme court, the Colorado Supreme court can do this, which the, the Supreme court's already thrown that argument out in the past. Um, the, the one that actually seemed to get some traction as well, the officer one did, but the 14th amendment doesn't bar someone from whole, from running for office and that it's up to Congress to remove someone. Um, all sorts of weird arguments. But, um, you know, even before oral arguments, legal scholars sort of noted that the way Trump was approaching this left little wiggle room for the Supreme Court to find in Trump's favor. Um, but what became clear in these oral arguments yesterday was that it didn't, I think it didn't really matter. The, the court, uh, it, it seems pretty clear the court's going to find for Trump and they were just trying to figure out how they were going to do it. So I, there's a lot. You and I were texting all during yeah. oral arguments yesterday. You were getting increasingly grumpy at times. So let's just dig in. I, I mean, I think it makes sense to start with yesterday and to talk yeah. about the Trump v. Anderson stuff. So what, what was your take as you listened to oral arguments yesterday? What, where do you want to, what yeah. do you want to talk about with that? And then we'll go back to the immunity argument. That sounds good. Yeah, yesterday I was working from home, so I was able to have the oral arguments on the whole time, and I was tr I was trying to do other work, but I found myself, as you as you mentioned, sort of getting really lathered up and angry about this. But let's maybe start with some some quick observations. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, this is likely going to be an eight one or a, probably a nine nothing decision in favor of Donald Trump overturning Colorado and getting Trump back on the ballot there and across the country. Right. So it it is. It's clear that both conservative and liberal justices are uncomfortable with engaging with the question of, of whether Trump was an insurrectionist. And so, you know, short of some sort of miracle, he's going to appear on the ballot. Now, what struck me and sort of upset me was what you were starting to kind of hash out there. Trump's legal arguments were all these small technical details, you know, uh, officer versus office, you know, do, do states have the right to do this? It was really, really technical. They were playing small ball uh, and the justices were eating it up. Um, and I think the counter argument was made by originalist, right? So you have a lot of conservative original scholar, originalist, textualist scholars that say, if you go back and look at the time when this was written. What was the intent? What was the meaning of those who were writing section, uh, Article Three or Section Three of the of the Fourteenth Amendment? It's very clear that it fits. And and my take on we're not you know we've said this before we're not constitutional law scholars, but we've spent a lot of time sort of reading these opinions. I think the only originalist interpretation is that Trump should be kicked off the ballot, right? If you're going to embrace originalism, it's pretty clear that the founders were thinking about individuals like Donald Trump. But that's not where the court was yesterday. Um, the, the, the originalist scholars were looking for these small little technical details. Um, and that's what got me so upset. 
I think their decision is probably the right one, but they abandoned originalism as yes. quickly as they could. There was no conversation about this. Um, that was really what struck me is that I thought this was going to be a big meta conversation about what was the intent, what was the meaning when they were writing the 14th Amendment. And Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, these classic originalists wanted nothing to do. They were, they were again, playing small ball with officer and office and, and all this stuff. And it, it sort of struck me as, is bizarre and it it got me upset, Phil. <laughs> so, it, and it, sh- yeah. it should have. I mean, it, you felt it felt like at times they were having to make Trump's argument for him, mm-hmm. right? Because the the his attorneys. I mean, there were lots of times where Trump's attorneys were like just a- a- acknowledged that their argument was kind of bizarre, and yes. and it would only apply. It's weird that it would only apply to Donald Trump of all presidents, and um, yeah. So I mean, it, it feels sort of disingenuous. And and uh, you know, you were texting. One of the things you texted me yesterday that made me laugh was the you know it's not just the original uh, it's not that we're just that they're abandoning looking at what the original meaning of this yeah. was um they're also abandoning all their kind of you know legal principles of like yes. you know small government and states rights and all of this you sent me that i forget who it was somebody tweeted about like you know john roberts when it comes to the voting rights act he <laughs> yes. overturns the voting rights act because only states have the power to like make rules regarding elections but not in this particular case in this particular case this is a federal decision yes. states don't have the right so I, yeah, I mean, I was, I think I was surprised as they, and, and what particularly surprised me wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't surprised that the Thomases and Alitos or whatever are, are making sort of, you know, disingenuous, at times kind of nasty arguments. Um, what surprised me was the extent to which the liberal justices seemed willing to kind of go along with it. Like Katanji Brown Jackson was like, seemed sort of enamored with the office officer thing. Yes, and like, yes. I, I don't understand um, that part of it. That, that's the part that that doesn't sort of make sense to me. I, I think they were coming at it uh, from different perspectives in that I, th- I think they were worried about the implications of, yes, you know, yes. what this ruling is. And so I, I think, you know, they were all worried about the implications from a conservative side about like, you know, what, you know, what, what does this, I, I don't know, but, but liberals were worried about, you know, again, even I think, who was it? Was it Robert? Somebody even pointed yeah. out, like, if you do this, like, well, you know, it's, it wouldn't be unlikely to see, you know, uh, Republicans throwing Democrats off the ballots all over the place. So I think that's the worry, but that's pure original. Originalism right there, isn't right, it? Right, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, we're not thinking about what was meant. We're worried about the... Impl- it's, it's Yes, it is exactly the opposite thing. So, yeah, I don't... It, it, it was a. It was frustrating to see... For something that's supposed to be about sort of the legal arguments and whatnot. I mean, I guess it's good to be thinking about the implications, but... Um, uh, yeah, the, the, the whole process felt, felt weird. It felt like this was, this was, they knew what they were going to rule before. It felt like oral arguments were, um, irrelevant. Like they knew what they were going to rule beforehand. I think that's spot on. And, and again, I'm, I'm torn on this because we've talked, you know, I think originalism is bad, right? It's, it creates the veil of objectivity, but it allows all sorts of opinion to sneak in, right? So I think originalism is terrible, but if you are going to argue that you are originalist when you finally, I mean, I finally when you have a case in front of you, you can't then, to your point, go play all the small ball and everything. And especially, like, you know, you think about states' rights. I think that certainly is one where throughout the questioning yesterday, they were saying, we can't let states have this power, right? Now, states do. They have said states have the power to determine if somebody's not 35 um, yep. or somebody's not a natural-born citizen. States are the ones that can determine whether or not they can run for office. But when it comes to insurrection, 
no, 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 that has to be the federal government. That has to be Congress that does that. Yeah. That is sort of a – there seems to be an inconsistency there where sure. states can have power – in, over some things, but not over others, like voting rights. Yes, insurrection. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and part of the argument that came up, which I, at first I thought, well, that's interesting, and then as I thought more about it, it, part of the argument was like, if you allow Colorado to do this, it's not just Colorado that's affected; it's yeah. all these other states. So you're not just disenfranchising Colorado. You know, you're not just bumping Trump off. Of, you're you're disenfranchising Trump supporters in other states who didn't have a part of the yeah. process. And and on the surface, that makes sense but but states have different standards for how you get on the ballot across the board so yes. like it is much harder in some states to get on the ballot than in others there are like all these rules that vary from state to state and we allow it I, now this is where again from a political science standpoint it's crazy that we let 50 different systems yes. operate when we're electing <laughs> yes. a president no other place does that right we should have a federal election system but um if we're gonna say that every state gets to decide all of these different things like how you know we, we you know, how how you get on a ballot, how many signatures you have to have, all this other stuff, then if we're going to allow those variations, then that's no different than saying in Colorado, like in Colorado, you can't be an insurrectionist and get on the ballot like that. I don't yes. it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel consistent, the legal arguments here. So that's, again, where it felt like they weren't following the legal arguments. They were looking for loopholes in the legal arguments that allowed them to get where they wanted to go. And to your to the point you made previously about, you know, they were so worried about they kept bringing up the idea of the ambiguity of of you know the, the 14th amendment and and to your point all of the chaos this would create and that you know they were talking in the future what would happen how many other states would do this but when you think about some other issues where the 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 justices have pointed to originalism whether it's gun rights or whether you know the second amendment or abortion like they've been very comfortable saying that hey the constitution says you got a right to bear arms doesn't matter if yep. like we're shooting each other at levels we've never <laughs> right. seen before chaos in cities you know the Constitution, it says abortion, right? Alito, when he writes that opinion, says, hey, you know, this may cause chaos, but that's not our job. Our job is to interpret the Constitution. But then yeah. when it comes to insurrection, like, oh, no, 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 you can't can't do that. No states' rights. No more states' rights. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the other part that I thought, I was, as I thought about this last night and as I was thinking about it again this morning, I... I, I, I can't help but feel like the loophole that they that they should have latched onto, and this is where I'm not a legal scholar, so there's probably some legal, maybe there's some legal reason about why you know this was not the question before the court or whatever, but it feels like the the thing the court could have latched onto would have been less focusing on the process part and more focusing on the insurrection part. Like the question yes. could have been, is di, does what Donald Trump did rise to the level of insurrection? And if that's the case, then yeah, Colorado can do this. But then that makes it a really narrow, like yeah. we've defined insurrection in a way that like, yeah, we Democrat, I mean, Republicans can't turn around in Wyoming and say Joe Biden can't be on the ballot, right? We've, because if that's the case, then we can have further review yeah. of whether that's insurrection. But that feels like that is actually the real question is like, what does it take to me to, do, do you have to be convicted of insurrection? Yes. What, you know, let's, let's define insurrection. And then we don't have to worry about all of this other weird aspect of whether the president qualifies or which states get to decide it. That feels like that's the real question. And if you clarify that, you can make this about Donald Trump in ways that don't have implications for future. I mean, that's the narrow interpretation in some ways. And I don't know why they wouldn't go down that route other than 
they don't want to be responsible for yeah. removing a really popular presidential candidate ding, 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 from yep, the ballot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I think that's absolutely. I mean, all of them, right? I, not just the conservatives. I think all of the justices are uncomfortable with that. And so then, you know, if we step back and think about what all this says about democracy and the U.S. democracy's ability to deal with populist demagogues, we've seen multiple different institutions be unwilling to remove. Right? I mean, I think we could start with the Republican Party. They were unwilling to prevent him from rising to power. Then the Congress had the ability, the Senate in particular, had the ability to remove Donald Trump through through two impeachments. They chose not to do so because it would have been politically uncomfortable. And now it finally drops to the courts and the courts are going to do the same thing where they're going to pass on this knowing full well the danger that Donald Trump poses to the democracy. They're finding legal loopholes so they don't have to be the one. And it's it's frustrating when there are multiple multiple off ramps and the the democratic institutions all chose not to take those what one of the things that came up in the case also was this idea that there are provisions you know if you're convicted of insurrection you are like that's part of when you are convicted you're removed does some of this fall on jack smith for not charging trump with insurrection in this case because that was a part of the debate at the time like it feels like uh, i don't would the debate have been different if trump is facing federal charges for insurrection right now um would we have had to have wrestled with this in a more direct way i understand why jack smith maybe didn't do it he was looking for you know he wanted wanted to make sure he could win. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it feels like that charge might have been an important charge to level. Absolutely. Although here's the thing, though, I think 100 percent. Right. And they, the, the, I think the some of the lawyers acknowledged that yesterday. But here's the thing. So when you go back and again, I've spent too much time reading these original <laughs> interpretations of this. But in the Civil War, being charged with insurrection was not relevant because they realized that it wasn't possible to go out and charge all of the Confederacy with crimes. And in fact, most of them eventually were given immunity. So the idea isn't we don't have to prove you're an insurrectionist. That's not the problem. It's too, that's too big of a problem to deal with. We just mm. don't want you back in in government, right? And so, and again, the court just totally ignored that fact that when this amendment was written, the whole point was we're not thinking about formal charges. Just we realize if you've engaged insurrection, you're dangerous, and we don't want you to be president again. I mean. Oh, yep. I, I shouldn't get this upset, Phil. <laughs> no, you should. It was frustrating I mean, because I was even like liberal judges were making arguments about, well, the 14th Amendment was really meant just to talk about the, the reconstruct, like the post-Civil War era. And I think that's yeah. nonsense, right? Like we don't say that the First Amendment was written just to address what was happening in the rev in revolutionary America or whatever, right? Yeah. It's it's an amendment to the Constitution because it governs how we like it. It dictates how we govern our country like it's just nonsense to say that we put it in uh, we didn't say that there was a limit to this amendment we put it in there it doesn't stipulate that there's a closing clause to it but we're going to treat it like it only mattered in those 10 years it's just crazy the, the way they were sort of looking for ways to get out of this yeah a hundred percent yeah I know that uh, and again I, I I tend to agree that ultimately we probably shouldn't be creating a precedent of, of kicking candidates off. But, you know, I don't know. How they got there was just really, truly frustrating. And Trump is unprecedented. Like, I yes. mean, that's the other part of this, right? Yes. Like, it's not, this is not like a, I don't know. We're so afraid of, like, what would it take? Like what what act would have to occur to to meet the standard of this? And at this point, it feels like there's no act other than like, 
Other than being Jefferson Davis and the president of the Confederacy, there is nothing you could do to disqualify yourself under this to 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 run for office. This is such a good point, right? And now what Alito kind of responding to that said, well, you know, what's what's to stop you know future insurrection, you know, claims of insurrection? We're going to see this all the time. He even brought up impeachment. He's like, you know, for a hundred years there were no impeachments. Now we've had multiple impeachments, so we shouldn't do this. And I think what a terrible argument, right? Yep. To your earlier point, you if you're the court, you can set the ground rules of this is what insurrection is. And if you don't meet that, we're going to kick this out. I mean, there's so many other ways they could have gotten to this point. Um, yeah. We should probably talk a little about the immunity case. <laughs> yeah, let's do. Let's do. Yeah, yeah. So, that, so I mean, this is the other. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Go well, ahead. I mean, talk, so if, me this was, uh, if this case was good news for Donald Trump, the other one that uh, broke what, on, on Tuesday or whenever that, that came out Tuesday, was think, very, yeah. very bad news. Uh, as you noted in the introduction, this was a decisive uh, decision against Donald Trump, suggesting he does not have immunity. And, you know, reading that opinion, it was also that this isn't even close. You know, basically, they just t- tore apart all of his legal arguments, 50-some page review, very little space. He's basically trapped. He can try to bring it to the Supreme Court, but as you suggested, I think the Supreme Court is, Court is going to wave at this and say, we want nothing to do with it. We let you be on the ballot. We're not giving you immunity. You know, and that, that begins his his trial in, in D.C., get that moving again. So I, this one feels like that was not good news for Donald Trump. A hundred percent. I mean, this was an obvious answer, right? Yeah. Like the president, of course, the president is not immune. The implications of that are are mad. And it's again where the Trump argument was insane, right? I mean, this yeah. was the case in which the judges were asking Trump's lawyer things like if the if if the president orders the assassination of a rival using, uh, you know, SEAL Team 6, is that prosecutable? And and Trump's argument was essentially that only if he's been impeached first, right? Like, it's just crazy. Uh, and, and so the court clearly wasn't buying it. But I mean, the contrast, this was so bad for Trump and and, and the contrast, I, that's the part I feel like the contrast in, in this case that was so well written, so clearly written, like we're going to we're not going to put up with your nonsense. Right. Like this is and it had Republicans and Democrats on board compared to the listening to the oral arguments yesterday. It, it feels like like I'd rather have the D.C. you know, yeah. Court of Appeals be the Supreme Court right now. Like this is the this felt like a, a you know, a legitimate, thoughtful, legal uh, decision. But now. So, yeah, I, we talked when we when we when we half recorded on Wednesday. <laughs> we talked about whether or not the Supreme Court would take this up. And and uh, I, my my thought was at the time, like you, that like there there's no way they're going to touch that. They would just rather not touch this. And after listening to oral arguments yesterday in the Colorado case, are, are you is, does your mind change at all? Because my tendency is to still think like I'm yeah. torn to uh, one of two ways. On one hand, I think watching them desperately try to get out of this situation, I think they're just going to totally avoid like they don't want anything to do with this immunity case. The, the decision has been made clearly. And yeah, this like I'm more certain than ever that they're not going to touch it. On the flip side, watching them like get wherever they want, regardless of the legal arguments, there's another part of me that's like, well, I, just because it's legally well reasoned and clear, isn't going to stop the Alitos and the yeah. Gorsuches of the court. So like maybe they take it up because they want to come up with some other bizarre like presidential immunity argument. This idea that the president is like all powerful 
people has, you know, conservative, weird conservative yeah. roots back through the Bush administration and all sorts of other stuff. So did the the sort of weird acrobatics yesterday make you think that something weird could happen with this? Well, that's it's a really great question. Uh, my sense of yesterday is they wanted to avoid a hard decision and they will be equally consistent in avoiding a hard decision here where they can just say, you know, appeals court decision stands. But you do make me think whether instead of a, you know, a nine nothing where nobody votes to hear this case, it's possible that there may be a couple, right? So do we have yeah. an Alito and Thomas and Gorsuch who say like, I'd like to weigh in on this, where the rest of the court, the Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett are like, uh-uh, we, we want to steer clear of this. So that vote will be interesting to see. It, take, it takes four for them four to, to get the case, right? Yeah. yeah. And I, I don't think they'll get that, right? Man, I, I think Kavanaugh is, is politically savvy enough, um, and and, and uh, the Chief Justice and Amy Coney, I mean, I think they're going to want nothing to do with this. But, but Thomas doesn't seem to care. Alito yeah. is just a grump up there. He's so mean, <laughs> He's Phil. He's just an ass. <laughs> yes. So, so th- they may want to take a stand. But I think this one is, I don't know how you get to an argument to say that the president is immune. It's such a clear cut case. And they would look bad if they sort of tried to overturn yeah. this, given the sort of the heft of, uh, you know, uh, uh, the decision. But we will see. And I, I, yeah. I'm curious to see all that as well. It, it feels like an easy, like, uh, you know, we're like you were saying, we're going to let you stay on the ballot, but but we're not going to intervene and, and you, you're not immune from prosecution. Yeah. But one more. I, I, yeah. This is when we talked on Wednesday, we spent a long time on the immunity case and it feels That's, so minor compared to this yeah. now. But I, my as we were talking, I, my, I jumped back to the Colorado case for a second before we move on. I, it, is there a chance that at this point, like I, I think. There's no doubt that the court will allow Colorado, well, will reject Colorado's claims, right? They're going to leave Trump on the ballot. What is less clear to me is that they're going to be able to find a common reason for it. And so I could see a real like split where there's like an agreement on the the action, but there's like all sorts of different logics about it. That seems like that is like that just makes a bad situation even worse if there's not any sort of consistency or agreement on this. Um, Is that I mean, do you think that's the is that a likely outcome? That seems like that causes more chaos than than uh, than some of the things they were worried about by letting Colorado move forward. I, I, this is so true because you saw a couple different arguments. One was, well, he didn't take the right oath and he's, he's an officer but not in the office. Those feel really uncomfortable. It felt yeah. like they were all drifting to the decision that states don't have the right to do this. So that may prove uh, to be the one that they can all get on board with. But there are other ones. There were some legal scholars interpreting what they saw that the court will say, he has the right to run. This was another defense that was out there. Um, there's nothing in the Constitution that says he, he can't run. He just can't assume office, right? Yeah. And if they do that and then Trump wins, the, they will have to then once again. I mean, so I, I can't then imagine. Then it goes to Congress. Yeah, that's the most yes. chaotic of all the outcomes. Yeah. So, But they still have to find a way through. And and my guess is they're going to the latch on to this, that states don't have the right to do it. But but all of those all of those sort of little legal loopholes seem awfully weak. And I, you're right. Yeah. How they come to that decision it may it may prove ugly um and then we can come back and kind of you know really dissect that decision talk about how we were right all along (laughs) exactly yes (laughs) well should we transition yeah let's do it 
All right, so, you know, actually, when we taped this original, we started with the Middle East, and then the, the court cases came so powerful. But so last week, uh, U.S. forces attacked more than 80 targets in Iraq and Syria, a wide-ranging air assault on sites belonging to Iran-linked militias and Iran's Revolutionary Guard. Biden said the strikes had been launched in retaliation for the drone strike that killed three U.S. Uh, three US soldiers in Jordan. Phil, this was a measured response, and notable in that Biden did not directly target Iran, as many Republican lawma lawmakers were calling for. For instance, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham released a statement calling on, Biden, on the Biden administration to, quote, strike targets of significance inside Iran, not only as a reprisal for the killing of our forces, but as a deterrent against future aggression. The only thing the Iranian regime understands is force, end quote. Graham added, hit Iran now, hit them hard. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton also called for a direct attack against Iran, stating, quote, the only answer to these attacks must be the devastating military retaliation against Iran's terrorist forces, both in Iran and across the Middle East. Anything less will confirm Joe Biden as a coward, unworthy of being commander in chief, unquote. Wow, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, so the challenge Biden faces is finding a response that sends a message to Iran, but does not escalate the situation into a wider war. Against its wishes, the Biden administration finds itself being pulled into a variety of conflicts in the region, including this proxy war with Iran and an ongoing battle with the Houthi rebels over the Red Sea shipping lanes down in Yemen all of which ties back directly to the conflict in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. Phil, this situation has become really complex. What do you make of Biden's handling of this sort of messy situation? Uh, so, uh, you know, I think this is you, you, you talk about it being really complex. And I think that's where we started with this on Wednesday. I think it makes sense to start there again, which is uh, you have to begin by recognizing the complexity. Like I, when you look at the stuff that Lindsey Graham and, and, you know, Tom Cotton are saying, those are those are like simple views of things. Right. Iran's bad. What do you do to a bad guy? You punch him in the face. And and those are the easy sorts of responses when you're not the one having to make the decision right when you're running for you know, office or whatever and and um you know when you're in when you're the actual policymaker you have to recognize the complexity of this situation and and i think joe biden i don't know that i would have done the i would have settled on the exact same thing that the biden administration settled on but I think I probably would have settled on something similar, right? Yeah. Which is that that you you have to, I mean, you have to respond to those voices because they're not wrong, right? We can't let Iran just continue to do this. This is not a one-off thing. This is a series of attacks. There have been, you know, just dozens and dozens of these um, it, since the since the war in Gaza um, started. And so, you've got to hit back. You can't just do nothing, but. The last thing the U.S. wants yeah. is another war. Like as as we're already like struggling to come up with aid money for Ukraine, um, we can't find agreement on what's happening in Israel. I mean, the, if we learn anything from 25 years ago, it's that like we don't need more conflict at this time, and so we don't want a war with Iran. So. This is the this is the the fascinating thing about studying international relations is that this is that chess game, right? Joe Biden wants to send a clear message to Iran that we won't put up with this, but you don't want to overstep and you don't know what Iran is thinking or how far they're willing to go. And so trying to find that delicate place in between 
this feels like, I, I, I mean, as good a start as you can, or, you know, as, as you could really expect, I, I, maybe. What do you think? Is that, is, do you think, were you satisfied with this response? Yeah, yeah, I think I was satisfied. And again, you know, think one thing Joe Biden does well is engaging in military activities or military support in ways that don't lead to escalation. And we talked about this last time, Um, whether it was Ukraine or here, he's good at not letting things escalate quickly. Um, and, and he follows a, a very measured course. You know, in Ukraine, he slowly released more weapons, but doing so in a way that's not likely to upset Russia and cause them to escalate. And I'm guessing we're going to see something here where even though we're not directly talking with Iran, he's sending messages to Iran to say, we're not pleased with this, uh, but we don't want this to escalate. Iran sort of understands that they don't want this to escalate. And, and hopefully that leads to cooler heads. Now, we don't always know how the other actors involved, these militias, the Houthi rebels, they they have different interests, and that will complicate the ability of the United States and Iran to try to manage this as just sort of a bilateral relationship. So I think it's smart. I think it's a measured uh, response. I think he's not getting pulled into some of the sort of, the I don't know, the aggression and the craziness of, of domestic politics, but but there's still more to come here. I think it's, it's and I think the big thing is if, if, the, if there isn't a ceasefire, if there isn't some long-term solution in Gaza, these groups are going to continue to seize on this and, and make it more difficult for them to, to, to solve. So I think it's just, again, so many, as you noted, so many moving parts here that it's it's difficult for any administration, the United States, Iran, all of them to kind of manage that. So, but I think Biden off to a good start, but but more to come, I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's telling that the the sort of war hawks, the Lindsey Graham's, are, are also the yeah. ones who want like brinksmanship with China and want yeah. like it's like you you just can't like the, the capacity of the United States. We just can't do all of that, and so you have to figure out where, you know, how do you allocate limited resources? And this is an example of it. The, the proxy thing you point out is really fascinating, which is that, you know, a chess game is challenging enough when it's just the U.S. versus Iran. And we're trying to figure out what Iran wants and how far we can go with Iran. It's different when you add all of these other groups in, right, who are who are not Iran. They're not states. They have different sort of incentives and different sorts of, you know, cost benefit calculations. Many of them are more extremist groups, which is where they came. came. It's not many of them. They're, they're more extremist groups. That's how they got Iranian support in the first yeah. place. Um, and so uh, that makes it more complicated. And, and, you know, we've we've talked about this in lots of other situations in which, like, even if if Joe Biden and the leadership of Iran don't want war, the the behaviors and actions of those groups are not always in line. And and so um, that's the danger, right? All these more variables, all the more variables that we throw into it, the more likely someone makes a mistake or not even a mistake. Somebody who wants war, you know, does something to try to provoke, you know, uh, there might be some of these uh, proxy groups that want to see war between Iran and the United States. And so they're going to push those limits. And so that that's where you know, whatever, some sort of communication that, you know, when we talked on Wednesday, we talked about, you know, Khrushchev and Kennedy in the in the Cuban Missile Crisis, who were having this communication directly, because they were worried about that, about these other actors who might, um, you know, make mistakes. We don't have, I mean, it was not that we had a good relationship with Russia, but we at least had a communicative relationship with them in ways that we don't with Iran. It's just, there's just so much room for error in this situation that it's, 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 it's difficult. It's scary. 
Now, last, so the the episode that uh, never will be able to be heard, um, we were, when we were recording that, you were talking about this question of predictability in an article, yeah. I think, that you put up on the webpage. And yeah. I, I've been thinking a lot about that. Maybe share with the listeners this, this challenge of trying to not be predictable and the implications of all of that. Yeah, so there's a piece in the Atlantic that I, I've put up on the on the website. There were a couple of pieces in the Atlantic that sort of talked along these lines, but the argument, I think this was a Graham Wood piece, which was basically arguing that there, there's a danger of like we we essentially have all like there there's like a um, a well understood dance that plays out here, which is that you know Iran can do this and they know how we're going to respond. We're going to strike the their proxies, but not strike Iran directly, and so nothing actually changes. Like not, you know American behavior in response has become predictable, and we talked about this on when we in the in the never to be heard episode in terms of Israel as well, in which Israel has sort of, you know, defied American, um, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, warnings about advice, you know the way they're carrying yeah. out the advice, and it's because like the, you know historically like it doesn't matter like we're going to support Israel no matter what, and so the argument of this article was it, it's not it, it the argue, article's not arguing that the the Lindsey Graham's and Tom Cotton's are right, but it's arguing that like the U.S. needs to do something unexpected or unpredictable because that's what. Iran, the reason why they will continue to do this is that they are confident in how the U.S. will respond. The U.S. isn't going to attack Iran. The U.S. doesn't want war with Iran. And so you, Iran feels like, you know, we can do this. We can, you know, just sort of uh, these little minor attacks. We can be, you know, uh, you know, wasps constantly stinging at the United States. And we know how the U.S. will respond. And so I, I think that's really fascinating. I don't know what the unpredictable response is, but I think there's something to that, which is to to sort of throw Iran off balance and, and to say, you don't know how we're going to respond. You don't know that you can continue doing this and getting away with it. So it's, it's interesting to think about that. I, what, I mean, do you have, do you have thoughts on what that would look like or, or do you, do you agree with that argument? I, I find it interesting, right? And I, I, I find it a little scary because I yeah. like predictability, but I think there's some truth to it. Now, the only examples I can think of are, are Donald Trump examples, right? And which are, are largely reckless, but unpredictable. And yep. so, you know, I think we could also use Nixon as an example, right? I mean, so we talked about Henry Kissinger. Um, he used to go around and telling people that Nixon was crazy and he doesn't know what he's going to do. And that increased his negotiating power, right? And so being reckless, being random, being unpredictable does have some benefits. At the same time, it comes with some really high costs as well. And if the goal is to avoid escalation, being reckless can also quickly lead into the very thing you're trying to avoid. So, you know, double-edged sword, but it, it's a really interesting argument argument that that states know U.S. enemies know how the United States is going to respond. It's very predictable and sort of the game plays out. It's, it's again, it's an interesting sort of conceptual model to think about. The the Trump example is, you know, we I, again, I, I mean, I don't. I don't want to praise Donald Trump because I don't know even I don't know that this was wise or if this was foolish and just worked out. But we, you know, you can you can look at the the U.S. attack on the on uh, uh, Iranian uh, Soleimani, general, the general, yes, Soleimani, yeah. yep, in in Iraq where we assassinated him with a missile strike, basically, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that was unexpected, right? Yep. Iran did not expect a high ranking, and and that was the example where Iran responded with missile strikes into Iraq on American bases and whatnot. But with like some level of forewarning, so they were trying to minimize the danger. But I think the way that played out indicates even that even Iran was like, I, this was not, we, they weren't sure how to respond because it was unexpected. And so 
I, again, either that would that you could point to that and say, I, I feel like unless we know what's going on behind the scenes, it's hard to say whether that was brilliant or whether that was like reckless and we got lucky. But um, that's an example of where, you know, something different uh, led to a, a sort of, un, un, I don't know, a unpredictable response or maybe, uh, you know, had more of an effect. No, this is such such an interesting. The other thing that, that I've been thinking about here, too, is somebody this week, and I can't remember who was, again, referencing Henry Kissinger. And before Kissinger was in office, he talked about the danger of getting pulled into conflicts like we're seeing, you know, fighting proxy forces in, in Yemen and Iraq and Syria. And, and Kissinger talked about that in these asymmetrical conflicts when there's a big power and a little power. Uh, the little power, the, the guerrillas, the insurgents, they win by not losing. But the big power here in the United States loses by not winning. And I keep thinking about this. And you mentioned Israel's in the same same boat here where you've got these big actors. It's going to be hard for them to win. But if you're yeah. the Islamic resistance in Iraq and Syria, if you're the Houthi rebels, you win by not losing. You win by yeah. surviving. And so now if you're the United States thinking about how do we prevail against the Houthis? How do we prevail against these proxy forces? Or if you're Israel, how do we prevail against Hamas? It's much more difficult. I think the U.S. is thinking about that. I don't know if Israel is really thinking about no. the long-term political solutions of how do you defeat, uh, you know, an asymmetrical threat. So, and again, it just adds more, I, peppers more complexity onto all of this. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating argument because when you think about what does it look like for Israel to win in Gaza, it's hard yeah. to imagine what that is. Like, unless, uh, you know, I again, I, it's easy to imagine what it looks like for... When you say for Gaza for Gaza to win or for Hamas to win, I mean even regardless of how much devastation Israel you know uh, creates, um, uh, you know Gaza's going to be there, right? And, and so it's it's one of those where it's hard. And, and at this point, the the ex extent of the the methods that Israel is using has already sort of made them a loser, I think, in in this situation. And it's the same thing in the United States. Like, what does winning? look like for the United States. And I don't like you're not going to be able yeah. to do away with people who don't want American involvement in the Middle East. Like it's just that that's yep. it's not it's an unwinnable conflict. And so it, it has to be like this much more narrow or like we're going to focus on American security. But I mean, that's that's not even narrow. Right. It's, yeah, you're, you're right. The, it's just, the, it the just other, creates a situation where this is really going to be difficult moving forward for the Biden administration, sort of navigating all of these things. Oh, while a presidential election is going on as well. Right. <laughs> this is the, this is why we're, you know, people have talked about for a long time. It's really difficult to maintain a, a military presence around the world. <laughs> like it's just, it's, it's, it's unsustainable. So well, I know we need to move on because we have a great fun uh, game to play at the end. But I, the other point that you mentioned on Wednesday that I think is worth bringing back up, which is that this, I, this would look potentially very different if the Iran nuclear deal was still in place because you know what's happening and and I know that that's a controversial idea but this is an example where I feel like in this game of chess Iran doesn't have a whole lot like it's not that they don't have a whole lot to lose but they know that like they they don't like they don't they know the US does not want war with Iran right now like with what's going on in Israel what's going on in Russia with tensions with China the last thing the US wants is another war with Iran and and so Iran feels like they can, you know, hit and, and not really risk mass escalation. 
if the Iran nuclear deal was still on the table, they would have that to lose in a way that might potentially change their behavior. And so, I mean, to some extent, that depends on your view of Iran and, and you know, what, how much they cared about the Iran nuclear deal or, or whatever. But it does feel like this is another way in which we have sort of taken one of our cards off the table. Like this is this weakens our ability to to, you know, I don't know, to to ex- exert power or influence over over Iran. I'm so glad you brought that up. Absolutely right. And we don't always think about the foreign policy blowback from you know previous administrations. Way you know that was it was a bad idea for the Trump administration, and it has hurt the United States, and it has removed leverage. Right. I think you're, you're, we're talking about a very very different dynamic if if Iran is still part of the Iran nuclear accord. Now, it doesn't mean that you know the Israel Hamas thing isn't complicated, but you would reduce one. Uh, I don't know, one instigant or you know, one variable yeah. that would make it a lot easier. So, no, that's great. God, there's so, yep. so much to this. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Should we transition to our to our game? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, you know, the staff here at the Politics Lab has created a new <laughs> game and, and we're, we're calling it our, if writer, you were. our writer's room has come up with this. <laughs> that's exactly right. So, all right. So in this game, we're going to pretend to be a major political actor and spend a couple minutes pondering how we would act if we were in their shoes. And so we're going to walk through four different scenarios. Scenario number one. All right, Phil, if you were Joe Biden, how badly would you want Taylor Swift's endorsement? I, so I, I I think I, <laughs> I, I, I we're gonna, I think we're going to disagree on this. I'd want it pretty bad. I, yeah. So I, I I come back around to um you know I I think. Taylor Swift is a phenomenon that's like, you know, it's not that it hasn't been seen before, but it's been a long time since you've had this sort of influence and impact. Um, And, you know, in in political science, we talk about like power and what is power and power is influence, the ability to like change people's minds. And and I think if I'm if I'm Joe Biden, a a Taylor Swift endorsement is just it's amazing. Right. That extra little bit, even if it makes a little now. Having said that, I don't think this should be a priority of the Biden administration <laughs> at all. Like, I, I think there are so many other things that are far more important for this election uh, than getting Taylor Swift's endorsement. But all things being equal, you give me the chance of having Taylor Swift's endorsement or not. I say yes. I, there was yeah. a poll that I saw uh, because you, you when we talked about this on Wednesday. Well, I, I'll just I'll stop yeah. there and then I'll throw my poll back. I'll let you respond and then I'll yeah, throw, no, throw I, my poll number. I, I tend to think if you're Joe Biden, you want it. But I think maybe it's less significant than others do, right? And I, I get that Taylor is a big deal, but I was, I, I think about back to the Obama administration and he was like the coolest guy and all the performers, whether it was, you know, you 2 or Bruce uh, Springsteen, you know, Common, all these guys were singing about how great he was. And maybe it mattered a little, you know, I, I yeah. wonder how much that translates into the ballot box. Now, but to your point, Taylor Swift is like an entirely different thing. So, so you're talking about some polling. Yeah, I saw some poll after we after we talked about this on Wednesday. I, I saw some poll yesterday that said, and I wish I'd looked at I didn't look at the, the details of it, but it, the, the headline was something like one in six voters said that uh, Taylor Swift, um, that, that a Taylor Swift like endorsement would have an impact on their likelihood of voting. Wow. One in six. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> 
Now, so the question is, was that like just Taylor Swift fans or is that like, because here's the other thing that, you know, the conservative, you know, the, the MAGA movement's going crazy over this. Yeah. So maybe there's a huge number of them that are like, if Taylor Swift endorses Joe Biden, I'm even more likely to go vote for Trump. So <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't know exactly what the root cause of that is, but it is remarkable the extent to which like conservatives are melting down over yes. Taylor Swift and the possibility that she might say something about politics. But the funny thing is like, you're right. The MAGA movement is melting down, but Donald Trump isn't. So behind the scenes, apparently. Apparently he has said he's not worried about it because he thinks he's more popular than Taylor <laughs> Swift. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, let's let's move to scenario number two, which also speaks to oh, I guess not exactly popularity, but all right, Phil. If you were House Speaker Mike Johnson, what would you have mumbled under your breath when you saw Representative Al Green, Democrat of Texas, wheelchaired into the House at the last moment to cast a surprise no vote in the impeachment of Homeland uh, Security, uh, Secretary of Security Alejandro Mayorkas? Uh, Green was in the hospital recovering from abdominal surgery, and he appeared wearing a blue hospital gown and those tan little socks. Um, apparently, like he Ubered over, I guess. Uh, his vote proved decisive as Johnson suffered an embarrassing impeachment law so 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 what are you mumbling phil oh I, it would be uh the, the it would it would be lots of uh words that i shouldn't say on this without putting like an explicit lyrics tag yeah. on the podcast i think it, I, I would love to have heard to have been able to be inside his mind like oh, yes god damn it like but we also talked about like the, the ned flanders quality of him yes. <laughs> and that Gosh, darn i don't it all. know like yeah right 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 uh but yeah i i, I kind of wish i had been there to see it uh, this is like a this is like a Uh, this is like sort of a movie like moment that doesn't almost seems not real. I I, I don't know. What do do you think he, what would you have thought? I really like the Ned Flanders angle to it because you're right because like some politicians would just be cursing up a storm. He he probably was the shuckers, you know, or something. Like that. <laughs> so, but the other thing I think he's mumbling was is something to the effect of like, well, it was a nice run as speaker, right? I mean, what we've seen is that you know your your tenure as, as House Speaker for the Republican Party is very very tenuous, and I think they're they may actually get the impeachment vote vote at some point. But that's bad. I mean, it just looked bad. It was bad optics. Um, you know, and Nancy Nancy Pelosi, she always had the votes, right? And, and Mike Johnson yeah. in his first impeachment vote didn't have them. And, and later that day, he lost another vote on, yes. on Israeli uh, military aid or whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, a couple of pretty significant losses in the same time. I know we got to move on, but I want to yeah. flip this question around for yeah. a second and make it a little different, which is to say, if you, Bill were out green and had just had abdominal surgery and were in a hospital gown and brown socks, what would it have taken for you to Uber to the the Capitol to vote on this? <laughs> I think more than an impeachment, right? <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Well, and what if, the other well, thing is, I, I don't know what sort of condition he is, but I, I don't think I would appear anywhere in those little socks. I have no problem <laughs> I'm in the hospital room, but I'm not wearing those out. I mean, they're nice socks. they got the little grippy things on the bottom, but some sort of a hospital. No, I wouldn't do it. But again, you know, good for him to say, like, this matters and our democracy matters. But I think it would have taken a lot more to get me out of the hospital room. What if it had been National Chorizo Day and they had had a whole spread of chorizo at the Capitol? Now, okay, he's. I've, I've then just you would have been like, you would have wheeled in and been like, oh, there's an impeachment vote today. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I'll a, vote while I'm here. <laughs> here's the other question: though. How much chorizo can I eat after having abdominal surgery? I, I don't well, know. <laughs> there, makes... There's a good. There's a good chance that the abdominal surgery is a result of chorizo <laughs> for you. This is, this is absolutely true. So, all right, let's jump to number three. All right, Phil, if you were Nikki Haley. 
How would you feel about the fact that on Tuesday, you were the only major name on the Nevada Republican primary ballot, but still lost to the option of, quote, none of these candidates? <laughs> Under a new weird rule set by the Nevada GOP, the Republican contenders had to choose to participate in the caucus or primary. Trump skipped the primary to participate in the caucus, which allocated all the primary delegates, so that makes sense. That left Haley essentially alone on the primary ballot, and she still lost to none of these candidates. How would you feel if you were Nikki Haley, Phil? So I, I, I'll take the sort of abstract, like big picture view yeah. first, which is to say Nikki Haley didn't campaign in Nevada. She's yeah. putting all her eggs in South Carolina and all these other places. The the primary didn't matter uh, in the end. Like people will forget about this in a week. And so no big deal. But if I zoom into the I'm actually Nikki Haley, this is the sort of thing that when I'm 93 years old, I lay awake at night still yes. thinking about like this is the sort of thing that will run through my head forever that I was on the ballot and people would rather have anyone else, nobody rather than picking me that it's it's. It would, yes, I, I, it, it would, it would mess. I would, I would have to schedule extra therapy sessions to deal with this. <laughs> I think that's right. I, I would feel trumped, right? I mean, we're, we're part of this sort of cult-like movement that's no longer a political party. It's about Donald Trump, and that would, it would really hurt because you know Haley seems like she really understands the game, right? And she understands what's going on. But, like, the fact that Trump supporters are so vindictive that they will show up in the primary just to vote for none of these candidates to stick it to <laughs> another fellow Republican sort of speaks to the cult-like dynamic that is Donald Trump right now. And, yeah, I think you're right. I think this is – maybe she'll laugh about it, but it's it's got to sting a little bit right now. <laughs> this is – it's also worth mentioning. It's sort of unrelated to the if you were, but – I feel like we can't touch on Nevada and not mention that the reason it's so weird this year is that the state of Nevada was like, hey, we got to get away from caucuses. Those are weird. We're going to yes. do primaries. And then the chair of the Republican convention uh, was like, man, tough. We're still going to do a caucus. And it also, this is a guy who is facing criminal indictment for the false of, uh, false elector scheme. Like he is a Trump crazy. Like it, it fits perfectly that oh. he's like, I don't care what the laws or the rules are. We're going to do it this way. And I don't care. Like this just, is so it's crazy that the, the, that the chair of the Republican Party is under indictment and is still yes. running the caucuses for the next yes. election. Oh, that is that is just perfect. So, all right, let's jump to our, our fourth and final, uh, if you were, scenario. So, Phil, if you were British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, would you continue fasting for 36 hours at a time? We learned this week that Sunak fasts from 5 p.m. on Sunday to 5 a.m. on Tuesday. Uh, and it, it, This week, it sparked some intense discussion across the United Kingdom. Uh, Sunak told the BBC that fasting is an exercise in discipline and a health habit. Now, studies suggest that intermittent fasting can be associated with a variety of health benefits, but it can also trigger home hormones that lead to feelings of irritability, drowsiness, low energy, and general grumpiness. Phil, if you were Sunak, <laughs> would you continue to fast? I know the answer. <laughs> the answer is 100% no. <laughs> oh. I, as you're reading this, I think like I'm the, the anti-Sunak, right? Like the, the he's engaging in an exercise and discipline and health habits. That is like I'm the opposite of that. And then all to, uh, you know, the, the problem is it can lead to irritability, drowsiness, low energy, and general grumpiness. I'm already there. Like those are me already. That is that is the Phil Barker approach to life. No, I, I could. I, you and I have we've talked about this. I, I actually tried uh, 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 intermittent fasting at one point. 
because it is the, the research out there says it does all these amazing, you know, it does really good things. And so I was not doing like this three day fasting. I was like, I'm not going to, I'm going to go from dinner to lunch the next day, or right? I'll go 12 hours or yeah. whatever. And I made it like three days because, I, and it was like little things. It was that I couldn't like in the morning, I had to drink my coffee black rather than putting cream in it. And I was like, this is unacceptable. <laughs> Done. I can't do this. <laughs> what about you? Yeah. I, I like you. I have friends who do this and they talk about how wonderful it is and like you don't miss it. Um, but I usually am thinking about meal like two meals in advance, right? So, you know, if I've had <laughs> breakfast, I'm thinking what's for lunch and what's for dinner. I don't know what I would think about. Maybe I would start solving real problems if I didn't, you know, think about those subsequent meals. But I just don't know how I make that transition. I also don't think I should be allowed to make you know, major foreign policy or domestic decisions when I'm hungry, right? You know, those Snickers commercials, that's me, right? I think I would be, I would be going to war with Argentina again if I was the prime minister of the UK because I hadn't had a snack, you know? So I think there's, there's some problems there too. Are you, are you the type of person that has to have snacks? Like uh, Kelly, my wife, when we, when we like travel or whatever, it's, it's gotten much better, but it, yes, she'd like came to learn that like, she just needs to have like a granola bar in her purse because when the grumps <laughs> kick in, it kicks in. And so, yeah, that's, yeah. The idea of going 36 hours is insane. No, that, and again, it's, it's, uh, it's good on him for doing so for, you know, variety of maybe religious, spiritual, you know, health benefits, but I wouldn't advise it for the two of us. I don't think we should even be <laughs> podcasting on an empty stomach, right? I mean, we see what happens even when I, I, I told you I had a granola bar before the previous podcast that I still couldn't figure it out how to record properly. <laughs> well, and my problem is it's not even, it's not even like, we don't even have to go so far as not eating. Like in all of our travels and stuff together, there have been times you've tried to force me to do things like drink a smoothie or eat a piece of fruit. And that makes me grumpy. Like that's, that's a, that's a, a line too far for me already. The smoothie incident will stick with me forever. <laughs> Phil and I were in New York and we were wandering and we had a coffee and I think we were going to walk somewhere. And I'm like, here, let's stop. They had this little food cart that looked like amazing smoothies and we got a couple of them. And you were like genuinely irritated that I ate a smoothie. <laughs> Oh, that's a that's a good place to wrap up. Well, Phil, why don't you remind everybody how to stay connected with us? Yeah, you can find us at thepoliticslab.com. Uh, and as usual, you can click on this week's episode. And I, I've got uh, a couple of those Atlantic articles we talked about with the uh, Middle East, a couple of articles on. on um, I'll probably throw an article up there as well about the oral arguments yesterday. So, yeah, if you want to read a little bit more, you can find those links on our webpage, thepoliticslab.com. That is fantastic. All right, I will see you next week, Phil. Yep, crossing my fingers, hoping you recorded this time, Bill. Me, me too. <laughs> <laughs> bye. Right, bye-bye. <laughs>